0: Welcome to Truth to Power. This is Hart Hagen, and I'm joined by Jake Bush. Jake, how are you doing today?
1: Uh, I am fully recovered from my hangover, uh, so I'm doing wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, today's a good day. I'm just going to run with that.
0: (laughs) Glad glad to hear it. So uh, today we're talking about the FBI's war against Dr. King. Uh, and I was thinking about talking a little bit about Nathan J. Robinson and, and this book that I've of his that I've read called Why You Should Be a Socialist, and it it has it's kind of a genre of books that is like a, a general defense of socialism uh, by a modern person, taking into account the arguments against and the arguments for. And it had, uh, it, other similar books include like The Socialist Manifesto by Bhaskar Sankari and uh, Socialism Seriously by Danny Catch. It, had, it really takes every argument I can think of against and deals with it and every argument that I could think of for and a lot else. It, 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 to me, it's a rich study because I used to be uh, conservative. It's like I was a Republican until I was 40. And then I was a uh, kind of a moderate independent for a few years, but still very much in the neoliberal mindset. Um, and then so I was steeped. I mean, somebody, a friend of mine said, you ought to read Milton Friedman. Well, I know Milton Friedman better than you do. Um, I I used to preach Milton Friedman, I know Milton Friedman, you know, I I know the free market, uh, all the free market ideology, I call it the free market fraud, uh, (laughs) because it's just a, it's just a, it's an ideology that that supports. you know, economics used to be called political economy back in Adam Smith's day. There was, you know, the term political economy acknowledges that there's a connection between the government and business Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas you you take that you separate the two and you have this study called economics it's supposed to be the science but it's an idea it's not a science it's an ideology yeah Uh, but it's what you're taught go ahead
1: and you'd be amazed how many people who, who are steeped in this this sort of like classical economics i think they call it you know and uh it seems like every time something happens with the economy, they all throw up their hands and say, well, that's not supposed to happen. Right. My, the, my, this doesn't fit the model. <laughs> it's almost like that stuff is uh, going to fall apart when you put it in the real world with all of its pressures and the politics inherent to it.
0: So you're but, saying that their theory doesn't account for the facts?
1: You know, I'm going to go out on a limb. And I'm going <laughs> <laughs> to say that's true. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's very frustrating. Dump Friedman. You don't need it. If anybody, you know, thinks that they need it, promise you don't. Um, and yeah, no, I'm glad you brought up those those uh, those books because I actually uh, recently downloaded uh, a few volumes from Vivek Chipper um, about the the ABCs of socialism, so to speak. Just some some quick, like under 50 page uh, sort of primers. Um, and I would highly recommend anybody give those a read. I think Chibber's a, a fantastic uh, mind and, mm-hmm. and is really good at breaking these things down really simply. Mm-hmm. So,
0: you know, one thing we could do on this show at some point is uh, the, just draw from the DSA's website. I mean, there's an eco socialist Green New Deal, and there's uh, just a lot of good uh, content on there that people can get and prepare for without having to buy a book. Mm-hmm. So
1: yeah, I think the organization is pretty good overall at, at trying to make these things accessible. That's been a major project from from the national organization down to the locals to make it, you know, as accessible and understandable as possible, because I think people have this idea that it's really complex. And like, yeah, I mean, if you want to get into the weeds and try to read all three volumes of Capital, which if you do, you're a madman, but hey, yeah, right. power to you. Um, but you know, it doesn't have to be that complicated. You know, it's if you can't explain it, like to a five year old, then you probably don't understand it. uh, And you absolutely can, I promise.
0: And the free market is definitely something. The free market ideology, neoliberal economics, is definitely something you cannot explain to a five-year-old. It's, it's something you have to accept on faith. Yeah. It's like one thing Robinson was talking about is like your economics textbook should address the issue of where profits come from. You know, we just accept that profits are good, and yes, profits are good, but where does where do profits come from? And there's this widespread assumption though, capitalists, people with capital are the job creators, and Therefore, you know, capital, you would think that capital is the only factor in production, you know. so uh, you know, Labor didn't create those profits, capital created those profits. Right,
1: there's just, you know, there's, there's just no work to be done unless some some guy owning a business tells you to do it. It's like, oh, right, right. that's the only way that we're gonna ever get anything done is, is some dude with a, you know, with his dad's car lot is gonna make it happen.
0: Yeah, just leave this to the smart people.
1: Right. The smart people which is actually a wonderful segue right into our topic because we're going to talk about some really smart people with some really evil goals right <laughs> and, and you know we were talking before we went on air about about the difference between that era and this one um, and i'd love to get into that so if you want okay. to take it away all right
0: so let me read this first paragraph here we're going through a list of, of 10 things or nine things And uh, the show is The FBI's War Against Dr. King. Uh, It is based on a report by the Church Committee, a congressional committee in the 1970s that investigated the FBI's work against Dr. King in the 1960s.
1: Yeah, here's a quote. Uh, From December 1963 until his death in 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was the target of an intensive campaign by the Federal Bureau of Investigation to neutralize him as an effective civil rights leader. In the words of the man in charge of the FBI's war against Dr. King, no holds were barred. We have used similar tactics against Soviet agents. Same methods were brought home against any organization against which we were targeted. We did not differentiate. This is a rough, tough business.
0: The FBI has acknowledged Uh, This continuing to quote from the book, The FBI's War Against Dr. King, which is available on Audible Audible and Kindle, and also a lot of it is just, you know, available on the, on the web. The FBI has acknowledged 16 occasions on which microphones, the 16 occasions on which microphones were hidden in Dr. King's hotel and motel rooms in an attempt to obtain information about the private activities of Dr. King and his advisors for to, for use to completely discredit them. So what do you make of this, Jake?
1: Um, I, I think this is the kind of thing that, that feels really obvious to someone like you and me who are maybe prone to, you know, sorting through our collection of tinfoil hats and selecting the right one for the day. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. um, you know, it's got to match the shoes. Um, right. But, you know, I guess to a lot of other people, this would probably come as a major revelation, you know, because we got to remember, a lot of these things were just kind of blatantly illegal. Um, a lot of the things that the FBI was, was doing at the time, and the CIA especially, uh, in the 1960s and earlier, really into the, in the 50s as well were just completely illegal, <laughs> things that they should not be doing. Uh, and, you know, it, it's very funny. It reminds me of a lot of our discussions about police brutality and you know, government overreach nowadays where somebody like my mom will always ask me like, well, how do, how do they get away with this? How, do, how can they just do that? And I, I just, I have to say, well, mom, well, who's gonna do anything about it? <laughs> you know, like that's, I think that people tend to forget that power is the ultimate decider it's not the law you know mm-hmm. it's about enforcement um and if it's very much a who's watching the watchman kind of situation it's you like know pa- power
0: flows from the barrel
1: of a gun i that's that you are now quoting chairman Mao, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> which i have hey i've done it plenty of times i actually just dropped that line at a party the other day yeah. if you want to know what it's like to hang out with me um well,
0: because Mao said it is by definition wrong, correct. Because, uh, you know, <laughs> Mao is, can't say anything right. Lenin can't say anything right. Bernie Sanders can't say anything right. And we're all know we know that all those are cut from the same cloth. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is Stalin, is Mao, is Bernie Sanders. They're all the same. They're all thing. the same thing, completely. And by, because they because socialism is the word that they identify with, they can never be wrong ever about anything. Never. It's like when Sanders said, as a matter of fact, Cuba has done a great job with literacy, which is just a statement of fact. He couldn't, he couldn't get away with saying that.
1: <laughs> that was maybe my favorite micro-controversy, was mm-hmm. when everybody was throwing a fit, uh, Democrats included, about, about him complimenting the Cuban literacy program, which mm-hmm. has led to Cuba having a higher literacy rate than our country. Right. Um, yeah. Now, I could go off on this tangent all day, but it, it, it is important to note, though, that that was honestly basically the stance of the FBI uh, in the 60s, too. You know, that it was understood that any, uh, uh, any subversive elements, including Black people who just said, hey, I'd like to vote, <laughs> um, that was... That was subversive. That was subversive, and it was the equivalent to, you know, Stalin and Mao and, and all these other, you know, national enemies of ours. Uh, so
0: it's subversive because they're trying to subvert the power structure. It's like the power, you know, subversive is, suggests this conflict between two groups and the powers that be want us to believe that, that they're on our side and we're on their side and that we together should be on the side against those who are trying to subvert us. Right. You Right. Know? And, and in a
1: weird way, you know, I think it's sort of a liberal reaction to be like, oh, we're not like those radicals. We're not like, you know, Cuba. You know, I think that people have this knee-jerk reaction to say, well, hey, I'm actually on your side. You know, I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'm against Cuba and Venezuela or whatever, too, you know. And I think that's something that people should resist because I think that you see these very obvious sort of milquetoast demands like we were talking about the Black Panthers 10 points and saying this all feels kind of obvious. This isn't really that extreme. Uh, but it was treated with the utmost seriousness by the FBI.
0: Uh, if there are parts of it that are not obvious, they should at least be the subject of discussion like, you know, right. people being workers, being able to own the means of production. That's mm-hmm. just a partnership. You know, that's a collective, that's a cooperative business. It should be a, at least a subject of conversation.
1: Yeah, and and, but it's important to note that even these things that feel very obvious and feel like they should be at least subject of debate. um, Those are indeed subversive, you know, Mm -hmm. they they do indeed challenge power. And I think if anything, that should help illustrate how there is a a united struggle there. There's a solidarity there between people across the world who are labeled as our enemies and the people who are at home, uh, who would just like some dignity. You know, there's a common enemy there, and I think that 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 we should raise that to a higher level of understanding, uh, to say like, yeah, no, like the, the Dr. Kings of the day who were just asking for you know equal and fair treatment, um, were indeed challenging power in the same way as like I don't know Ho Chi Minh or something like that. I mean, obviously in very different ways, uh, but they were fighting the same enemies.
0: But you can't say that. You're not allowed to say that. What you just said (laughs) is not the subject of conversation on, especially on commercial media because commercial media is controlled by those who own a whole lot of property. Yeah,
1: no, precisely, precisely. And there's a real effort to get to, to, to kind of tamp that down. Um, And there was in the sixties as well. You know, if you want to get into sort of laying the groundwork of like what that looked like, you know, I mean, this was my, uh, this was when my parents were born, so it's not like I can really speak to it and, and experience, but maybe we can take a look back at it.
0: Mm-hmm. So item number two, what else was going on in the world in the, uh, what in the country and in the world in the decade of the 60s? First, the 1950s. First, uh, let me say, to me, the modern world began in 1945. Yeah. World, 1945, the end of World War II, and then Uh, The U.S. was the unchallenged uh, superpower, the rest of the industrialized world was destroyed, and the Soviets had been our allies in World War II versus the Germans, but they became our enemies because, you know, capital needs an enemy. It's like in 1984, you had the continuous war going on. Uh, so we have to have a continuous war we had. So the, the late 40s and the, through the 50s was the, you know, kind of like the golden age of the Cold War. Uh, mm-hmm. And we had the Eisenhower administration. We had a whole lot of wealth being created and generated in the U.S. for a number of different reasons. But then in the 60s, uh, you have discontent. So in the 60s, you have the civil rights movement. You have the Vietnam War, you have the Cold War and the war on communism, and then you have lots of, assa- you have student protests, you have lots of uh, assassinations. JFK assassinated in 1963, Malcolm X in 1964. Uh, Robert Kennedy in 1968, Martin Luther King in 1968, Fred Hampton in 1969. Lots of assassinations going on in the 60s. It's thought to be a turbulent time. You have, the, you have hippies which have been largely discredited uh, in, in popular culture, the thought to be categorically silly, even though what ought to be silly is you know, killing 3.8 million Vietnamese in the name of peace and prosperity and human rights, you know?
1: Yeah. And, and it's important here to really understand the economic, you know, field at the time, you know, and, and this is not something I'm an expert on by any stretch. Cause I'm not an expert on anything. Um, I heard you were an expert on everything. Well, sometimes I think that way, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I am at my core, an idiot 26 year old um, who's just read a couple of books. Uh, but it's important to, to think about the 1960s and really that, that period between like 45 and 70 uh, as, as sort of the, the real point of accumulation in, in American history. That was, that was when we really ramped up and t- totally took reins of production. That was when we uh, solidified our hegemony on the world market you know through largely military keynesianism you were talking about just all this money being made Mm -hmm. at that time and it was largely through military keynesianism you know the government would subsidize housing projects for tons of workers who would go on to work at you know places where you'd make guns and bombs and planes and all these things Um, it was very profitable very 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 profitable uh the problem is and this is where i get into disagreement with more social democrat types you know um is that that period was an aberration in history. You can't go back to that. That's Mm -hmm. not something that can ever happen again. Um, Because I think we have to understand that after that period ended, and we really had that neoliberal term under Carter, um, we turned to financialization as our way to make money. It was not about making things anymore. And you can't just go back to that. It's not how history works. Uh, So at this time, you had a real, you know, a real, Marxian dream (laughs) in terms of of revolutionary potential, where you had tons of workers uh, in factories standing together on the line, you know, that you had tons of labor power through labor unions. You know, you had a relatively high standard living for the working class. That's a point in history where you had real revolutionary potential, you know, in in the sort of classic Marxian formulation. and I think that everybody sort of understood that. I think that everybody...
0: Thought, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this. Marx thought that revolution was going to come ar- about by a... By, the, the main players in a revolution would be the, a strong working class.
1: More, more specifically, an industrial proletariat, right? That was what his formulation was in the you know, mid to late 1800s. Um, where what he was saying is that, you know, back when there was a more agrarian society, a rural based society, you just didn't have enough working people physically close enough together to actually talk and communicate and like form strong associations with one another. Uh, But because of the the circumstances of industrial capitalism, where you have work like hundreds, if not thousands of workers just concentrated in one space at a factory, At that point, you had the capacity to actually build a strong association uh, to bargain and in some cases even fight for your rights. Uh, And in that period between 1945 and 1970, that's what you had. You had tons of American workers just packed into factories and living in close quarters Mm -hmm. one to one another. Um, And that's where you see a lot of this. And that's where the working class got really smart. And you had a lot of people like Malcolm X, Fred Hampton, you know, Martin Luther King, Jr., obviously, uh, who were brilliant leaders uh, and, and, and the likes of which that I don't think we've seen since um, because there was a real uh, groundswell to build up leaders like that. You know, I think that people have this formulation that the leaders created the movements, but I think it's the other way around. Um, and, and I just don't know if we have that kind of potential right now.
0: Uh, largely because of the efforts
1: of the FBI. So
0: apparently the FBI considered Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Fred Hampton a threat. I mean, they straight up assassinated Fred Hampton. So I thought it was curious and interesting and funny recently when uh, David James of the Metro Council uh, kind of echoed what the FBI The FBI said Louisville could have a gang war. You know, so it's like, please, the FBI is, is justifying itself, legitimizing itself. Have we forgotten, if we ever knew, that this is the same FBI that straight up assassinated Fred Hampton? This is the same FBI that was probably involved in the assassination of Malcolm X. This is the FBI that uh, may or may not have been involved in the in the assassination of Martin Luther King, but uh, they were they harassed him for they were uh, for the last five years of his life. Uh, And here's a quote, moving on to item number three, In 1970, Director Hoover, so J. Edgar Hoover had been director of the FBI for the entire existence of the FBI from about 1921 to 1971, 50 years, and uh, In 1970, Director Hoover told reporters that Dr. King was, quote, the last one in the world who should ever have received the Nobel Peace Prize. I think he's a little bit, I don't think uh, Director Hoover has a favorable opinion of Dr. King, does he? No. Last one in the world. Not that he shouldn't, not that there were two or three other people who might have been more favorable, but the last one in the world. And he didn't just say this in an internal memo or to his staff. He said it to the press. Dr. King is the last one in the world who should receive the Nobel Peace Prize.
1: Yeah, and and, I mean, you know, it's also here that shortly (laughs) afterward, he, when Time Magazine chose him as the man of the year, Director Hoover said they had to dig deep in the garbage to come up with this one. And I think it's important to note, like, they really did believe that this was a threat to peace, right? That this was a threat to order. Um, And that was an opinion shared by a majority of Americans, too. Um, because, I, you know, people had this idea of a, a negative peace, I think is how Martin Luther King put it, where he said, it's where we, we sort of have these injustices and inequalities, but we're pretty peaceful about it. <laughs> we're pretty quiet about it. Um, and any sort of, you know, rallying for, for something equal and fair and just uh, was a threat to that negative peace and was a threat to the order at the time
0: what do you think is the relationship between that? So the FBI is in charge of internal intelligence. They're wanting to find communist enemies within the borders of the United States and the United States at the same time is at war in Vietnam. Is there any connection between those two?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have to understand. That might be
0: a curveball. I'm just... No, no, no. It's,
1: it's a good question because I think that we have to understand that everything outside of our borders is going to be reflected internally. This Hmm. is something that a lot of people in the peace movement, you know, for generations has, has tried to warn people about is that what you do outside of our borders is the same thing that we're going to be doing inside the borders. Hmm. If we're not doing it already, Hmm. you know, um, it's sort of that old analogy of that, you know, if you build a cage, it requires somebody be in it. Hmm. <laughs> you know, and once you have it, you're not going to get rid of it because it lends you too much power.
0: It's a perfectly good cage. Yeah. Well, no, really. Yeah.
1: You have to justify the existence of uh-huh. of the cage or the weapon or whatever analogy you want to use. And really, it's not even an analogy. Um, that's just how it is. Um, right. And, and, Go ahead. Yeah. And it's sort of the final stage, you know, of of the final stage of expansion. And the final stage of subjugation on a global scale is to subjugate internally as well, you know? And I think we see this now too, where we're looking at, you know, the things that we did in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, Guantanamo Bay and all this like suppression, um,
0: we're turning it around on ourselves. We're turning it around on our own borders. Today, we have the Patriot Act. So the Patriot Act sailed through Congress almost without opposition, uh, after 9-11. 9-11. And the Patriot Act, uh, arguably, is unconstitutional. It is, you know, is a violation of our constitutional rights. I haven't looked at the detail, specific details, and I, I think there was a FISA court before the Patriot Act, but the Patriot Act, you know, allows the government to withhold uh, people, to detain people, to interrogate people, to uh, keep you know compile secret evidence against people. Uh, I wish I could knew more about the Patriot Act just off the top of my head, but it seems just grossly unconstitutional. And and that's what we're dealing with today, which shows that that what, when we talk about the FBI's war against Dr. King, we're talking about something that is still very relevant today.
1: Yeah, it, it is very relevant, and I'm glad that you brought that up because. You know, as I said, once you build an apparatus, you have to justify its existence, you know, and you have to just keep finding a way to keep using it, you know, and that's sort of reflected in in another way by the way that we've, we've sort of structured uh, um, intergovernmental aid, right? So like, that's the thing is that, you know, these, we always talk about like cops having military gear, you know, Um, but the problem is, if they don't use it, they lose it. (laughs) <laughs> and it's sort of a similar <laughs> right. idea. And that's that's very literal. If they don't use it, then they stop getting the money to to, to get it again. Uh, well, we're talking
0: about people who many of them have been soldiers, or if they weren't soldiers, they want to be soldiers. So they get to have their own little video game, like pretend war here on our own defenseless citizens. <laughs> What's to not like about that?
1: Right. And, and that's the thing. You can't externalize, you know, and, and that's why, you know, I was thinking that, there's this sort of knee-jerk reaction uh, amongst liberals to say, well, people like Dr. King, well, he's not as bad as, as, you know, Stalin and Mao and Ho Chi Minh and all these like national enemies. Right. Um, but they were all threatening power. They were all threatening the same power, you know, and they were all at the, the end of the gun of the American empire. It's just a matter of where it was turned, you know?
0: Well, to me, the most I, I the most offensive thing about, it's just kind of a subject that I keep getting back around to, I can't fully explain it in a way that sounds convincing to myself or others, but the very fact that Dr. King, that that it would be a problem for Dr. King to be under the influence of the Communist Party U.S say, you know, the last time I read the First Amendment of the Constitution, it said it, there's, there's like five rights in it, not just the freedom of speech and the, and the freedom of the press, but also freedom of assembly. You're supposed to be able to meet and organize with whoever you want to meet and organize with. And the, uh, the so, so that's one thing, the fact that communists uh, are uh, you know considered to be an enemy but you have this never-ending war going on called the cold war so in the you know the cold war is against russia and china and the russians and chinese call themselves communists therefore uh, anybody within the united states that calls itself communist is said to be an enemy it's just this elaborate uh, pretend connection between the great powers overseas and your next door neighbor or your coworker, you mm-hmm. know?
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that it's, it's, it's infuriating, but it should highlight just the fact that it's all about power, you know, uh, and they were willing to go to any lengths to, to exercise mm-hmm. that power. Um, like right here, I mean, we've even got some lists of things of what the FBI was doing to people like this, like wiretapping, Neutralizing, blackmailing. Um,
0: you know, there was a lot Why of. Why do talk they consider these things necessary?
1: Because they, they really genuinely felt like the civil rights movement was an existential threat to the United States. They really truly believed that. And again, I, I know I've said it a couple of times, but I, it really bears repeating that, you know, black people asking for the right to vote, <laughs> demanding the right to vote, demanding the right to not be lynched, um, that sort of thing things that we think are just obvious, like, of course, that should be a demand that you should have met. um, Those indeed were a threat to our order, to the way that we did things. They were a threat to the way, the American way of life. Um, And that's unfortunate and that's a little heartbreaking, especially if you've grown up the way that I grew up, sort of thinking like we're the good guys. (laughs) Um, But that was indeed just like a matter of business. You know, it was, a, it was just the course in the United States. and still is. Um, and, if, and without that, the wheels don't turn. You know, without subjugation of a certain underclass, the wheels of the United States do not turn, you know, whether it's internal or external. And that's why when you had, you know, farmers and indigenous people in Latin America who were fighting back, uh, that was seen as a threat. You know, when they were saying, don't poison our water. Well, that's a threat because without doing that, We don't, this, this country does not continue to dominate the way that it has. You know, that's just. What do you think about the
0: domino theory? Domino theory is this idea that if we let, uh, let me just describe here. This is a quote from a Michael Parenti book. It says, uh, um, it's quoting somebody from the 1960s saying, if we don't fight the Viet Cong in the jungles of Indochina, we will have to fight them on the beaches of California, close quote. And Parenti goes on to say, the image of the Vietnamese getting into their PT boats and crossing the Pacific was to invade our West Coast was as Walter Lippmann noted at the time, a grievous insult to the US Navy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. Um, I think
1: that there's, there's a, a bit of projection going on here. You know, I've, I've sort of come around to this. Somebody, I can't exactly remember who uh, made this point about Iran Right, and and I think they make the point. They made the same point about China, uh, in 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 a modern context, right? Like modern Iran and modern China, saying that you know there's this scare tactic being put out by the of national security apparatus and some of the more not even conservative. It's really Democrats and Republicans both think that like Iran is this existential threat to the United States, and that they're going to bomb us. They're going to invade us. You know, China is going to take over the world. They're going to invade, but. I think what, what people have pointed out correctly is that mm-hmm. those countries are a lot more rational than we are. Right. <laughs> um, that, that's something we would do, and we are doing in a lot of places in the world, uh, but that's, that's our own sort of neuroses <laughs> that's not really shared by most other countries. Um,
0: well, if you own the world, if, if you feel like you own the world, then when somebody wants to take part of it, then that's a that's a threat that's theft from you you have to defend against somebody else yeah. taking your part of the world
1: I- yeah and i think that that you see that with these these peasant movements like the you know the chinese revolution the the vietnamese revolution um, and there was, like you said, they, everybody thought, oh, gosh, they're going to invade California or something. It's like, no, they, they're not really out to dominate the entire world like you are. <laughs> um, they're out to just have a little piece of the pie for themselves, which, which I think is pretty justified. But, of course, if your, if your rationality, if your line of logic, you know, and your line of reasoning is domination, accumulation, domination, accumulation, going in that sort of dialectic circle... Um, then of course you're going to think that everyone shares that.
0: So you're saying, what I just heard you say, is that the United States wants to dominate and accumulate. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, well, inverse, actually. This is actually accumulate an academic theory. Dominate. Okay. Yeah, this is okay. actually an academic theory. I got to give a shout out to, to Giovanni Arrighi uh, in the long 20th century, which I would implore everyone, for the love of God, try to read that book. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not an easy read, but my God, it's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his what he posits is that the, the rationality of any capitalist power is in one form or another just that dialectic. Territorial expansion, accumulation, right? Uh, and the United States, in the United States, it begins with accumulation and then we expand and dominate so we can accumulate more. And then we just keep going in that cycle because it's one that necessitates that you continue, Uh, whereas other great powers- you seem to be
0: describing an empire. The United States is not an empire, or if it is an empire, it's a benevolent empire. Right. Well, that's
1: the liberal formulation. (laughs) That's the Samantha Power formulation, isn't it? That we have a duty to protect.
0: We have a duty to protect all these countries. That's why we're here to protect you. So we're going to kill half of your citizens. You know, the British called that the white white man's burden. Right, right. But that's not us, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're a kind and gentle empire. Right, exactly. That's the idea. That's when we have to.
1: Right. That's the idea.
0: Let me read this quote from Michael Peretti about, uh, it just says, The truth is the Vietnamese, Cubans, Grenadians, Nicaraguans, and for that matter, the Russians have never invaded the United States. The United States has invaded Vietnam, Cuba, Grenada, Nicaragua, and Soviet Russia, and continues to try to isolate and destabilize these countries, all of whom have made repeated overtures for friendly relations with the USA.
1: Yeah, with a bit of naivete, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, I really need to read more, but what I have read about sort of the late era of the, the uh, Soviet Union, like in the 80s and 90s, um, Gorbachev really, really wanted to have good relations with, you know, the, the United States and with, with England. Um, I think he said that, you know, if, I you're could work at
0: gu- with- <laughs> if you're outgunned, you have every incentive to live peaceably with somebody. Right. They don't have any incentive to live
1: peaceably with you, though. Um, and, you know, I think Gorbachev said something like, you know, Reagan I could work with. Like, he was he was an okay guy, personally. Like, I could, I could talk to him. I could not talk to Thatcher, though. <laughs> He's like, I could not work with her. Um, because there really was this, uh, this sort of one-sided aggression, and I think you uh-huh. see that really across, now that I'm thinking about it, internally and externally. You know, I, I think a lot of uh, people like Martin Luther King Jr. probably had a lot of incentive to say like, look, we're gonna we're gonna protest, we're gonna push back, but like we don't really want to fight. Uh, but unfortunately, a fight is what you have. Um, and I think that that's that's really where we saw Fred Hampton as this major threat later uh, than than MLK was that he was one who understood, no, this is a fight from the beginning, uh, not because I want it, but because they do.
0: Well, at some point in our notes, it says um, that Martin Luther King was the most effective and dangerous Mm -hmm. of all of the Black leaders. He was effective because he was dangerous. I mean, he was dangerous because he was effective. If he hadn't been so darn effective, he wouldn't be so dangerous in the eyes of the FBI.
1: Yeah, and and what you had there was a, a real a really capturing lightning in a bottle kind of scenario where you had a very effective organizer, right? With the support of some of the, the religious community because he was a pastor um, and who was able to speak across racial lines, who was able to speak along national lines. You know, he, he did speak a lot about international solidarity and peace. Um, and that's just not something that's very... Easily uh, formulated mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons, uh, and it, it's especially hard to imagine now. You know, when you look at just the way that this this country sort of developed ideologically, uh, but you know, I, I think there's probably been a little bit too much credit given to the fact that MLK was nonviolent, and that's why he was so effective. Um, because I don't think that his nonviolence would have been as effective as an organizing principle if it weren't for the threat of violent insurrection from others Hmm. you know i think that there's a compliment bad cop honestly yeah i mean as much as i hate to use (laughs) use that (laughs) analogy to describe the civil rights movement but but yeah that's that's kind of what i'm talking about you know i think that it's much more effective to say that well mlk uh well this guy's really nice i like him a lot better than those other guys with ak-47s i'm gonna be honest with you
0: um, so <laughs> you have to choose between these two. You have to choose between nonviolent Black movement or a violent Black movement. Those are your choices.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and again, I don't think on his own uh, that would have been as effective. You right. That it, it, we tend to forget. And I think it's not, it's not us forgetting. I think it's intentionally suppressed in people's memories uh, that there were a lot of people around King at the time. Who uh, were were not so peaceable and not so nice, right? Uh, and and it's and of- and hated
0: him because he was not he would because he was too nice. So he was getting it from both sides.
1: Absolutely, he, he was.
0: Um, the non the you know some people were accusing him of actually in st- secret behind the scenes instigating the violence, uh-huh. and then others were saying you know we're getting mowed over and bowled over, and you're not going to defend yourself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and that's a tough spot to be in, you know, that's, that's sort of obviously I, I, it feels gross even making this comparison. Uh, but it it is sort of a similar dynamic to how, you know, the left has been sort of fighting with itself over elections and and Bernie Sanders and all this and saying like, Oh, you want to engage in the bourgeois electoral system and Mm -hmm. I'm not going (laughs) to get involved in that, you know, and, uh, and then the other people on the other side who think that like Bernie Sanders is the second coming of Mao or whatever <laughs> yeah right so, Let's yeah. go
0: to item four, quoting from the book. It says, shortly afterward, Time Magazine chose Dr. King as the man of the year, an honor which elicited Dr. Hoover's comment. Are you ready for this? So, Time Magazine nom- uh, names d- Dr. Martin Luther King man of the year, and the d- 50-year director of the FBI says as follows, they, an honor, um, they had to dig deep in the garbage to come up with this one. So, uh, so, F, J. Edgar Hoover of Martin Luther King says they had to dig deep in the garbage to come up with this one.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that yeah, that quote really just illustrates it all, doesn't it? Um, mm-hmm. And I, and I think that, but
0: it's not personal.
1: No, 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 and that's the thing. You know, I, I think that I think we were talking before we we started recording about how. You know i think that the the sort of cold warriors of that era in the 50s and 60s and the sort of intelligence agencies and the generally the american ruling class were probably a lot more effective than they are now um at least in terms of their intellect they were they had their they had their stuff together um more than they do now i think uh but the same thing remains which is this just sort of just itching gnawing sort of rage <laughs> Uh, And this, they, it all had to be very personal. Um, And why wouldn't it be? You know, I think that that's the important thing about all this is why wouldn't J. Edgar Hoover hate Martin Luther King Jr. personally, like on a deep, like thinking about him all the time kind of way? Why wouldn't he have that sort of rage? You know, this is somebody who is endowed with incredible powers as being basically the secret police of the United States, and when somebody rises up to challenge that, you're probably going to take that pretty personally. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're a personality like Hoover who it's, shared a lot of that with Nixon. It, this it's is still
0: hard. It's hard. Still, it's still hard for me to grasp. It's just hard for me to grab. You, you make a good case. I mean, you're doing your job, which is to empathize with the person, which is to try to get behind the mind of somebody who apparently sincerely believe this crap. It's just hard for me to understand.
1: Yeah. I mean, all of this stuff at sort of an academic level is fairly easy to wrap your head around if you really try. Um, but I think you have a point, you know, it's sort of like I look back at it, sort of, well, I don't have to look back. I mean, I look around now, unfortunately. Ben Shapiro. Yeah. And I, I can see people like that and I can sort of intellectually put myself in their place and understand like, Oh, that, there's a reason why you are like you are. And I, I can get that, but I, I don't get it though. <laughs> you know, like I don't get how you can't take a step back and just be like, am I being kind of an ass <laughs> right uh you know but we have to remember that we have self-awareness and a lot of these guys don't <laughs> that's not a that's not a a, a universal trait
0: well i always point to a couple of things that uh you have like hierarchical uh, You know, a hierarchy tends to uh inspire conformity if you will yeah. uh and a herd mentality or what uh Peter Joseph calls in-group, out-group behavior. This is the group I'm in, and uh, this is the group I am not in. And, and if you're surrounded by people who think they're in the same group that you are and give you pats on the back because you're preserving the identity of that group, supposedly, then that tends to, uh, you know, <clears throat> tends to cultivate outrageous ideas and actions and, and you know, outrageous things that people say. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, you're absolutely right, and 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 I think it's important to remember that a lot of the American sort of ruling class are probably the most coddled people in the history of the world. Yeah, uh, they <laughs> you know, believe they, their own PR. They really do. They, they really do, and they really don't understand that there is a world outside of their brain.
0: They believe their own self-justifying rhetoric.
1: Yeah, and and again, why wouldn't you? You know, I think that's sort of the thing is that we we talk about the way that you know, ideology is reproduced and how there material circumstances. Well, when I say we, I mean Marxists would say that your ideology is produced by your material circumstances, but that doesn't just work on the oppressed. You oh, know, right, that right. that works on the ruling class too. That they really never had a chance either. They really don't ha- didn't have any chance to be anything other than what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's intentional. And that's again, just a product of the circumstances. Um, and, you know, <laughs> there's sort of a joke, but it's not even really a joke that, you know, for, for their own sake, we have to take the billionaire's money. <laughs> you know, for their own right. sake, we yeah. have to, to get rid of people like Nixon and Hoover, these people who, who really were, and I'm not trying to be like ableist here, but they really were just deranged. Yeah. Like these are just incredibly cripplingly parano- paranoid people, you know, who, who are really believing their own BS.
0: You know, what it reminds me of is this is why we have to relieve them of their white man's burden. It reminds me of there was, you know, a criminal who got caught. It's kind of a petty thief, somebody who she's she now works in security. You know, she has this business advising people because she's been a thief and she knows how to do it. But she was going like she would show up in this rich neighborhood uh, in the middle of the day in Florida or somewhere, and, and she would. Uh, she would, you know, show up as a, like a door-to-door salesperson or somebody that was supposed to be there. She figured out a way to get in, steal some stuff, get out, and she would take a different car every day. And uh, so this is something that she did. She just accumulated this stuff. Couldn't, you know, couldn't sell it. There wasn't a real business or rational reason for her to be doing this. But when she finally got caught, she was relieved. Cause she was in a, she was just in the throes of an addiction. And it's mm-hmm. like, you finally have to stop doing that stupid thing. Mm-hmm. Then you're relieved.
1: Yeah. That's a, that's a real thing, you know, Is and I, I think that really does apply that like, this can't be fun for you. You know, I, <laughs> like I look at,
0: you know, yeah.
1: I, I look at, I look at things like this and I look at these, these sort of just, just, ice-chewing nut jobs in like the FBI and CIA. And I got to think like, this cannot be fun for you. (laughs) You know, you're living your entire life paranoid and angry. And, you know, you're jumping at ghosts around every single turn. You know what I mean? That can't be a good way to live. Uh, And I think that should indicate what you're doing. Um, But, you know, then again, they were pretty effective. They knew what they were doing.
0: Let's go to item five. It says, uh, what were the actions? This is asking ourselves a question here based on the book, The FBI's War Against Dr. King. What were some of the actions by the FBI that most thinking people would consider objectionable? Well, for one thing, they were wiretapping him. For another thing, thing, they were trying to neutralize him. The fact that they felt the need to neutralize a civil rights leader. And notice that this is, like war. This is the language of war when you're neutralizing somebody. They considered him an enemy of the state and an enemy of the people, obviously. They were doing this as part of the war on communism. Uh, and they were investigating his ties to the Communist Party USA as if you know as if being a communist is is bad in its in, in, in and of itself.
1: Right. And and you know, I, I remember uh, the, that, uh, what was it? The assassination of Fred Hampton, right? The Jeffrey Haas mm-hmm. book uh, that we were talking about earlier. And um, the, the definition of the term neutralize, mm-hmm. right? Was, it was a key sticking point in the legal argument of them saying, well, that doesn't mean we were trying to kill him. Oh, yeah, right. And they're like, what is, what is that supposed to mean then? <laughs> neutralize. Right. Um, but it, you know, you say most thinking people would object to this. I'm going to push back on that. Okay. Because I think that there's this understanding in the United States that we have this, this understanding that's inculcated through years of indoctrination, for lack of a better term, um, that it's all about legalism. It's about the law as it's written. You know what I mean? When that's really never been the case, <laughs> nobody really cares about the law itself you know, unless you are yourself a lawyer and that's your whole
0: deal. Well, the Republican Party platform says we believe in the rule of law. Can't you just take them at their word?
1: No, because, you know, what does the law mean? What is the law for? To what end is the law pursuing, right? Um, that's the real question. And that's what people mostly care about. And and by, by people, I don't just mean people in power. I mean people, you know, um, where you look at is that you can see it now. You can see people like this Kyle Rittenhouse kid that that shot three people, killed two of them in Kenosha, uh, a little literal kid with an assault rifle, breaking the law obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, he took took an assault weapon, you know, with him to this protest. I think he carried it over state lines, which is illegal. Period. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people don't care. Well, why don't they care? You know, they're talking about violent looters and, you know, agitators and all this, but they like this kid. It's like, well, yeah, because he's furthering something that they want. That's what most people care about. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's right here. I think that the wiretapping and the attempts to neutralize the blackmail, everything that happened to Dr. King, a lot of people would say, well, that's unfortunate, but we got to do what we got to do.
0: So you're saying that the law doesn't matter. What matters is power. Yeah, because
1: again, you know, and I used to get into this argument in grad school a lot with with actually a professor of mine. And I was just trying to the, the point I was trying to make is that yeah, the law matters. I'm not saying the law doesn't matter. But what I'm saying is that at the end of the day, whatever power can manipulate the law and and enforce it or not enforcement as need may, you know, arise, uh, that's really what matters. is is enforcement and it's who's, who's using the law. The law is a tool. And that's what I think you have to understand to make sense of any of this.
0: So let's go to item six FBI <clears throat> programs used against Dr. King. So these are the different programs that seem to come to bear against Dr. King. This is taxpayer dollars, but you have the Domestic Intelligence Division, you have Cointel Pro, counterintelligence program, you have ComInfil, Communist Infiltration Program, and you have something. Called racial matters. These are four, at least four, separate and distinct programs that somehow had Dr. King in their crosshairs, literally, uh, federal, figuratively, if not literally. So, th- what strikes me is like, get a job, don't you? <laughs> don't you have something better to do? It's like the FBI saying there, there could be a gang war in Louisville, and David James said, yeah. Uh, the, the FBI said there could be a gang war in Louisville. I'm gonna, you know, be I'm gonna support the establishment on that particular point but uh So infill is offensive to me, communist infiltration. We're gonna have a whole program called communist infiltration. And the only reason we have to have that is because communists are an enemy and communists are an enemy because we decided they were an enemy. Not that they wanted to be an enemy, but we decided that they were gonna be an enemy. So we have all this surveillance, all this talk of war, all this posturing as if anybody, your next door neighbor or your coworker could be your enemy. <clears throat> and what am I missing here?
1: Uh, I think that the one thing that you're missing, because you're right, it's the paranoia. That was the, real, that was the real killer in this time period. You know, it wasn't just the literal killings, you know, the assassinations, um, but it was, it was the paranoia. It was turning everybody against each other. You know, there's an old joke that if you go to a meeting of five communists or whatever, four of them are cops. Um, and that's <laughs> and that that sort of understanding. Well, it was also true of the KKK. It was true of any sort of quote unquote subversive element that, like, at one point in time, like half of the membership were probably FBI agents. Um, but the reason that but they, they were t-
0: there because they wanted to be there. <laughs> Some of them probably. Yeah, they were. They were. That was their hobby.
1: Yeah, probably. Yeah, they they, they had to put on their weekend clothes, and that's when it, they donned the It's not road. as
0: if the FBI was actually, you know, doing anything effective against the KKK.
1: Well, yeah, it, but the thing is, is that it's all about the paranoia. It's all about you know, even if they did nothing else, even if they did no other sort of attempts to neutralize any of these subversive elements or whatever, um, just the, their very presence was enough to slow things down at least, uh, because then you can't build solidarity and trust.
0: You have self censorship for one thing. People yes. Don't- People holding their tongue because of what, because anything you say might be being uh, listened in on by a spy.
1: Right, and that that is a highly effective tool that was used uh, at that time and is still probably used. But the thing is, is that what I would add to what you said is that that very dynamic, right, has, I think, probably made, you know, something like the FBI less effective today. Because they're starting to drink their own Kool-Aid. You know, the, the gang war in Louisville, quote unquote, is a perfect example of that. That once you start seeing enemies everywhere, you start to really believe it yourself. And once you start telling other people there are enemies everywhere, you're going to start acting like that yourself. You know, and that's how you end up with this burn after reading situation. Have you seen burn after reading? No. Oh, It's a great film. You would love it. You of all Hmm. people would love it. Okay. Uh, It's it's about these intelligence agency people who just end up pointing the finger at each other, and everybody is just a total moron (laughs) because everybody's so paranoid that they just cannot trust anyone, and they twist themselves into these little knots thinking that everything is a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that is probably the case in a lot of these intelligence agencies today because they produced that kind of environment for themselves (laughs) starting in like the 50s and 60s -hmm. you know um and that's there's a real cruel irony to that that they they created this environment of paranoia and this environment where everybody's an infiltrator uh to the point now where they really believe it themselves right but I mean, I could laugh, but (laughs) it is pretty dark, uh, you know, but that's why we have movies. We can laugh at those.
0: (laughs) I'm going to read one more of our things, and then I'm just going to ask you, Jake, what's the big picture here? What, you know, the FBI's war against Dr. King, what's all this about? How is it relevant today? Uh, But item number seven is, is a quote from the book. The FBI's program to destroy Dr. King as the leader of the civil rights movement entailed attempts to discredit him with churches, universities, and the press, steps were taken uh, to attempt to convince the National Council of Churches, the Baptist World Alliance, and leading Protestant ministers to halt financial support of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that was Dr. King's organization, and to persuade him that Negro leaders should completely isolate King and remove him from the role he is now occupying in civil rights activities. So the FBI is trying to discredit Dr. King. Why do they want to do that? Uh, that seems to like get back to the big picture. Why is this even going on? This
1: is not. If I could, if I could sum this up, this is not a boxing match with a referee and judges and rules and clubs. This is this is a street fight behind a bar at four in the morning. Okay, like there are no rules. You can't call timeout. You can't call your own fouls. uh, And I wish that I could just shake, you know, newbie kind of activists today, uh, as much as I respect them and their energy and everything, and just remind them, look, if the cops approve of what you're doing, it's not effective, Mm -hmm. period. The moment you start being effective is when they start fighting dirty. Mm -hmm. But there is no fighting dirty, really, because that implies that there's a way to fight clean. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And there isn't. You know, this is not, that's not what this is. They are not ever going to be okay with this because you are indeed threatening their order. You know, I think a lot of people nowadays, especially have this idea like, well, we're, we're following all of the rules We're we applied for permits to have our march. We're very peaceful. We don't even really raise our voice. And it's like, okay, they don't care. <laughs> right. um, you know, the, the, we had NFL players get booed off the field because they had a moment of silence in the name of racial unity. Uh, they got booed for that <laughs> for just standing together they't even need, they didn't even kneel for the flag you know they stood for the flag and everything and they still got booed because you are threatening the way that things are going and a lot of people are invested in that That's the lesson
0: Well o- Obama got the NBA players to to go to to not strike anymore what wasn't that wasn't he doing a favor for all of us please don't. Don't spike my blood pressure before noon,
1: please. I'm having a rough enough morning getting over this hangover that I mentioned. Please do not send me down in that spiral by mentioning the strike breaking of Barack Obama.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, we're going to have to leave it at that. Jake, thanks so much for joining me. This has been Truth to Power and the FBI's War Against Dr. King. Um, Have a great day. We're going to have to come back and talk about this a couple more episodes. How's that sound? Uh, No,
1: I was, I'm really looking forward to that. I had a lot of fun with this.
0: Sounds great.